the purpose of a service advisor and I've laid, you know, the trusted service advisor is to help your customer protect the investment they've made in their car and keep it running in the most affordable way. Welcome back to Ratchet and Wrench Radio, strategies and inspiration for auto care success. I'm your host, Chris Jones, and today I'm joined by Jeremy O'Neill, the founder of Advisor Fix, whose mission is to help shop owners and service advisors revolutionize their sales and customer service experience. Uh, Jeremy's been coaching since 2007, and among his ASC technical certifications, which he has five, uh, he is also an ASC certified C1 service consultant. He is also a CMBA certified master behavior analyst. He's MACS certified and he's AMAA accredited master automotive manager. Uh, Jeremy comes with a lot of experience when it comes to training and leveling up service advisors. And today we're going to talk about really what is a service advisor, how a service advisor works, how shops should approach engaging service advisors, hiring service advisors and training service advisors for success. So here's Jeremy. Well, hey, Jeremy, welcome to Ratchet and Wrench Radio. Hey, Chris, how are you, man? It's great to see you. Yeah, great to see you too, man. So you're the president of Advisor Fix. You know, tell us about how you founded the company and the services you provide. Well, you know, Advisor Fix has a, an interesting background. It started May 1st of 2010, and it was born out of myself getting fired from a, another consulting company. And at the time, I was doing coaching for another company here in Southern California, uh, but before that, I grew up as an advisor. You know, I, at 19 years old, I dropped out of college. I knew that becoming a certified public account just did not fit my personality. And my dad had at uh, that time had a second location that was failing and he was willing to give the technician 25% of the profit to turn the business around. And I raised my ass and I'll take that job. I dropped out of school the next day and that began my career in automotive repair. And early on, I was able to turn businesses around attain success. I went to work at a couple dealerships here in Southern California. I got to see that side of the business. And then um, early 2000s, believe it or not, I sold real estate for about six years and caught that wave. That was awesome. And then in 05, purchased my first shop, moved the family to Flagstaff, Arizona, came back in 2007. And that's when I started doing my coaching. And 2010 started Advisor Fix. And I just felt at the time that a lot of the training that was provided in the industry, and it's still kind of you know true today, that a lot of the trainers are still out of touch with the day-to-day -day business. You know, that you, when you train and you teach and you coach, you're really, you know, deep into that theory model. But then the reality is a lot different. So that's why I went back to work as an advisor in 2010. I just wanted to rewrite all my own material and really say, hey, what are customers doing? What are customers saying? What's happening on the front lines? Because there was half the stuff that I'd be taught in a class. Just I'd go back on Monday and it didn't work. You know, it'd backfire. Customers would laugh at me for saying some crazy line that I was told to say in class. And I, I just wanted to do it different. So I went back to work as an advisor and started Advisor Fix uh, back in 2010. And then really from there, Advisor Fix was more of a, a boutique customized coaching program. So if a shop would reach out to me, we would customize the training for what the shop wants. So we would kind of match our goals to their goals, find out what the shop specialty was and train the service advisors that the way that the shop wanted them trained. So our program was very customizable, very adaptable and uh, did that. So that was 2010 to 2016. So at the end of 2016, I had been coaching so long. I'm like, you know what? I want to get back in the business. I was on the road 200 days a year 
I said, I got to stop traveling. My kids are growing up too fast. So I found the worst shop in the United States. It was located in Hesperia, California. Uh, in 2016, the shop closed a whopping $143,000 in sales for the year. For wow. the year. Wow. Yeah, the the shop owner's girlfriend was doing, uh, uh, she had a hair salon in the back of the shop and it was making more money than the shop was. It was, it was crazy. Um, so I took that over and the goal was to turn that business around to a million dollar year shop within a year. And my formula on that was if I could do, you know, 85,000 a month in one month during the first 12 months, then I wanted to prove my concept, right? We were able to do that in November of 2017. And the growth has just been phenomenal. We we run about two and a half technicians and, and our revenues are just over 1.2 million a year in the shop. So small shop, but we're, we're very powerful at what we do. What a great story. Yeah. So talk yeah. about that a little bit. Like, you know, you talked about going back into the advisor world because you had been trained a particular way, you learned a particular way. What were some of the things that, that you had to relearn or some of the things that you wanted to really move away from because you felt like they were either antiquated strategies, they didn't work. You talked about the customers laughing at you. Like what were some of the things that you saw that you wanted to fix? You know, just the, the biggest thing was how tough customers were, you know, customers are armed with a ton of objections today. And I mean, even now it's, it's even, it's harder because information's at everybody fingertip, fingertip, you know, we're, we're 10 to 15 years into the mobilization of the internet and, you know, going back into the early in mid to, you know, 2000s, 2010, um, I would, you know, for instance, the biggest thing that drove me nuts is the traditional way that shops handle sales. You check the car in, you deal with what the customer wants, but then you have this laundry list of upsells. And then the advisor would call the customer two to three hours later and say, oh, by the way, we, my technician found these other things wrong with your car and then proceed to just rattle everything off. And I would just see customers checking out on that and that there was this friction with the auto repair consumer where, you know, if you pull most auto repair consumers in the United States, 95% of them have had a negative experience with an auto repair shop. And the reason for that is the way that it's handled. Shops are so transactionally focused on selling and getting their number and their ARO and their KPIs that they forget they're dealing with a human being. And if they put the relationship first, there's plenty of money. If you do the relationship first and help the customer get what they want out of their transaction with you, then you can move to the relationship side of the business, which is customers that toss their keys at you and say, hey, just call me when it's done. And they don't even want a price to fix it. They just trust you to take care of their car. And that's the biggest gap that I saw is most of the training techniques were, you know, how do you overcome objections? How do you, you know, make the sales pitch? And there was very little um, information on the psychology of a consumer. What makes an automobile repair customer buy? What is a reflex no? You know, where do objections come from? How does that happen? And then with the movement of digital DVIs, inspections, and the digital sales process, man, I was really excited to just have my own shop as a laboratory to test that out to where, you know, over half our customers I don't even talk to. It's done electronically. It's done automatic. They buy from us through the software that we use. And so go back, you know, when I got the shop in 2016, 2017, that was really where my passion was, helping advisors really make the transition over to the relationship side of it. But at the same time, blending in these new technologies that we have available at our fingertips to really, to really automate the, uh, the transaction. Okay. So, you know, when you 
went back into it and, you know, when you bought the shop in 2016, 2017 and really tried to prove your concept, once you did, like, you know, what was that like for you to, to prove that concept and then be able to take it into the market? Uh, well, I haven't really done that yet. I've been stuck in the oh, shop, you know. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny though. If you look at Advisor yeah. Fix, you know, we only work with a handful of shops right now. We're we're, yeah. we're still a very small company. Um, the the biggest thing for me is I, I'm so hands on in my shop that you know the mm -hmm. the hardest part has been that ownership side of the business and working on the business, not in it. But it also ties into the five star experience. I'm so committed to delivering a five-star experience to our clients that if anybody on our team is not committed to that, they don't have a job with us. And I'm, I've got a very short fuse on that. So, you know, on the negative side of my personality, I've been through over uh, 60 technicians and 57 advisors in a, in a six-year period. Um, and it's, that's just it. You know, at the, at the core of it, if you're not committed to delivering that experience, then you're just not going to make it on this team. So as far as bringing it back to the training, you know, the the – the delivery back to the market and to the automotive aftermarket in the industry has been mostly through the training classes that I deliver uh, through World Pack and some of the other associations, the Vision Conference, Automotive Training Expo. And the courses that we, we go through in a three-hour period, it's literally life-changing for the advisors to have a different viewpoint on their career and their chosen career path and how they deal with customers. It's, it's really awesome. But it takes the friction out of the transaction which is great. And we're seeing more shops right now have record sales than we've ever seen before. So it's not hard, but if you really add this layer of relationship to it and trust uh, it, it's amazing. Shops are setting record sales year after year. Yeah. And I want to get into that relationship aspect a little further down the line, but I want to ask you first, you know, as we talk service advisors, like what, what's your definition of a service advisor? Well, the, the definition of a service advisor, <laughs> most advisors fall into this job, meaning I don't remember a course offered in my high school or college that was, you know, service advisor 101, here's your career path. You know, most advisors typically either were from the back of the house or they, you know, worked at a restaurant and an owner saw them, hey, you're good with people, let's get you in the auto repair industry. So most advisors fall into the advisor trap that I call it, not knowing how many hours and just how hard this job is. You know, it, it's very mentally taxing because of the way that you have to respond to so many interruptions throughout your day. But the purpose of an advisor, and this is just something that I've burned into my brain, the purpose of a service advisor, and I've laid, you know, the trusted service advisor is to help your customer protect the investment they've made in their car and keep it running in the most affordable way. So that's our purpose statement. That's our mission statement as an advisor. And when you help a customer understand that that's your purpose, it's not about selling you an air filter, a cabin air filter, or a fluid flush today. It's about having a qualified technician who's an expert on your car identify your timeline and what your plans are for this car up front. And then we assess the vehicle and then we give you the full picture of what you need to do to help this car get to your milestones. If you want to go to five years, 10 years, you know, 100,000 miles, 200,000 miles, that's customizing the maintenance and repair plan for the customer. And that's what a service advisor should be doing, not really focused on the sales side of it. And it's funny. So in 2010, when I went back to work, there was a local shop that I, they did most of my diagnostic work for us at the gas station that I was at in the early 90s. So I went back to work at this shop in 2010. And I remember the owner gave me a piece of paper 
And on this paper, it said, our goal is to help you get to 250,000 miles if you follow our maintenance plan. And I looked at this maintenance plan and I'm sitting here thinking, the voice in my head says, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. That's too early. I wouldn't do that. So I'm like, I, I took the piece of paper, I tore it up and I stepped back real quick because I didn't want to get hit, right? Because <laughs> here's the owner handing me his philosophy and I'm tearing it up in front of him. So I had it back to him. I said, I'm not going to sell that way. That's not what I'm here for. He goes, no, you're here to make sales for us and you got to pay for yourself. I said, hold on, give me 30 days. I'm going to follow my method. I'll outsell your other two advisors two to one. If I don't, you can fire me. No, no big deal. Uh, but my point was not every customer wants to go to 200,000 miles on their car. Not every customer wants to get on the shop's plan of a million miles or whatever the shop has picked for the, the car. Every customer is different. So that's when I started developing the timeline, asking those questions up front, spending more of my time building the relationship and interviewing the customer at initial write-up, and then the sales would naturally happen. And that's when I knew, okay, I've got the magic sauce. This is how you have to do it. And it, it just, it speaks for itself. It works. Right. Now, and along those lines, you know, what would you say are the qualities of a good service advisor? What, what qualities should they possess? What traits should they possess? I, man, it is boiled down to one thing, and that's what I've labeled the servant's heart. And so when mm -hmm. you, you know, touch your heart, get in touch with your heart right now, the feeling, the emotion that's around your heart and love and all these emotions that go to the heart and think about serving people. And when you come from a place of a servant's heart, it's the customers first. So as soon as a car pulls into the driveway or as soon as the phone rings, that advisor goes into service mode. Forget admin, forget you know paperwork, uh, purchase orders, all that stuff. It's all about delivering that amazing service experience for the customer. And it's a helpfulness. So it's this willingness to want to serve. It's this willingness to want to be helpful. And then this is the challenge that most people uh, don't understand, Chris, is they've got to be able then to transition and leverage that into the back end financials. And this is where the KPIs and the sales come in. So my intentions are right. I'm in alignment with helping you. I'm going to help you. But at the same time, you know, if it's a diagnostic service, then we're going to charge you for properly diagnosing your car. We're going to charge you for the time. Here's the estimate. And then it's about building the ticket properly and knowing what your financials are and what you have to properly charge and not being ashamed of what we charge or what we should charge. So I, I think that's really it. It's, it's understanding being a very empathetic person up front, wanting to serve that customer, being helpful. And then once we get an agreement that we're going to work on your car and help you fix it, then we become the best advisor. I've got you know enough technical skills that I'm an expert on the cars that we're servicing. I can communicate with my technicians. I'm an expert of parts. I know exactly which parts work right for the right car, which supplier I can get them from. Can I get this today from this supplier or not? So you've got all this stuff going on throughout your day to deliver an on-time repair for your customer. And man, I'm really competitive. I'm like a super competitive person. So I want to deliver something. There's no other shop within 100 miles can deliver, and that's getting your car back on the road today. So if you call me, to, and we're on a major interstate out of L.A. going to Las Vegas, Interstate 15. We're the only shop in our area that will typically help customers same day with a breakdown. But typically, I can triage most cars getting back on the road in two to four hours. So that's just a competitive side of me that knows how mm -hmm. to execute repairs, and my team does as well, to deliver something that most shops can't do. And it's funny, my advisor this morning took a call on a broken vehicle. He's trying to schedule the customer for next week. And I'm like, after the call, I'm like, he's not going to come in. Like his truck's broken. He needs it back on the road 
ASAP, we should have captured the car and got it going. So when you talk about skill set, there's a lot to it. You know, you've got the emotional human side of it, but then you've got those tactical skills of executing a proper repair on the back end and knowing where's your workflow, how many cars you have in it, what are your assets in the back, how many bays do you have, how many technicians do you have, how fast can they do things, where are they at and what repair. And it's putting all that together on a daily basis. Oh, and by the way, you just had the phone ring and now you got to answer it. Oh, and by the way, somebody else just walked <laughs> in and they want you to they want to drop off their car. So, and then you've got a parts person saying, you got a text data. So you've got all this stuff that comes at you for eight to 10 hours a day. But through it all, you've got to keep the ship going forward. You know, so it's a it's a daunting yeah. task for sure. Yeah, it sounds like you need a lot of situational awareness to be a good tech. I mean, a good advisor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Yes, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the metrics. You know, you talked about the KPI. You know, we know that technicians are are judged on their efficiency. What are service advisors measured against? Well, you know, and a lot of this too, I think maybe there's time for change on this. I, I think, you know, you've got the basics. You've got your 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 labor dollars, parts dollars. So you've got your gross sales and you've got your gross profit percentage. But percentages don't pay bills and percentages don't drop money down on the bottom line ultimately. So what I've really come to understand is if we can hit our labor hours and our effective labor rate, everything else is going to fall into line. So it's about getting the right cars and getting enough labor hours produced each week. So if you have three technicians working at eight hours a day, they should produce eight hours per day in labor. So that shop should produce 24 hours a day in labor sales and then times that out, you know, by the week, that's 120 hours per week that that shop should produce. Most shops fall well short of this and then yet they're focused on charging a certain amount on the parts. And my focus is more on the labor, not necessarily parts revenue. The parts are going to come no matter really what you do with the repair. I can control the labor. So I can estimate the labor properly. I can make sure we charge properly. We can look at the condition of the car and then I can motivate my technicians to hit their eight hours a day. And if you're short on that mark of 40 hours a week or eight hours a day per attack, you're losing, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year as a shop. I'm not going to really nickel and dime my customer and have huge markups on my parts because they can price shop me on the parts, but they're not necessarily going to price shop me on my labor. So I constantly push my labor rate as high as I possibly can, but I'm driving it and focusing everything off of the labor sales. So I know if we hit our 120 mark um, hour per week and we do the labor sales with that at our effective labor rate, everything else is going to fall in line. I'm going to hit my profit targets. I know that as a given. And when you think about how busy shops are, that's just a great way to operate because now the foundation's built. And yes, you can do some minor tweaking on supplies and all this other stuff, but those are pennies compared to the dollars that we give up by not capturing labor sales. So that that's the biggest thing I would encourage all advisors to look at is, are your technicians at 100%? Are they producing one hour of labor for every hour that they're in the shop? And really good tech should be 120 to 150%. So now you take a small shop like ours, if I have you know, two techs doing 60 hours a week, those two techs do the same work of three techs and we're more efficient with the two techs than the three. So it's just a whole different dynamic that's moving forward. Yeah, it seems like advisors are kind of like the point guards in the shop, you know. 
moving between oh, uh, various a as- aspects of the shop, you know, dealing with customers. But talk about that relationship in order for the in order for the shop to be efficient on the back of the house, you know, and keep things going to get those numbers that you were just talking about. How important is it for the advisor to really to be really dialed into their technicians, the ones they're working with, understanding what the technician does, how that te- how that technician works, uh, how to convey the information from the repair order to the customer. Can you walk me through that? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, the biggest things advisors have to, let's talk about techs. What are technicians going to complain about advisors? Number one, you always get me the wrong part if you're sourcing out your, <laughs> your parts, right? So it goes to the parts department. That's a big issue. Number two is going to be, you don't sell enough on each ticket. So the, the, the biggest thing is parts selling enough on each ticket or not getting the the approval fast enough, right? So now there's downtime. So really good advisors, top performing advisors understand how to sell the system. So when you look at a car that's over 100,000 miles on the odometer, if you're doing a radiator, the car doesn't necessarily need a radiator. The cooling system needs to be addressed. So it needs a thermostat. It needs the radiator. It needs the hoses. Certain cars, it might even need the heater core. So really good advisors at the top of their game understand how to be the expert on the car and communicate this with the customer. So instead of selling a two or three hour radiator replacement, they're able to sell a cooling system repair with a rehose at eight hours. So now you're dealing with average hours per ticket that are two to three times higher than the lower ones. And that's how these techs are able to produce 150% because the shops are moving into selling the system rather than selling the component. That's a whole different mind game, you know, that, that when you look at approaching auto repair, it's better for the customer. Is it more expensive? Uh, short term, yes. Long term, no. But it's a much better way to approach a repair. Uh, so, you know, being on the top of your game as an advisor, making sure that, yes, your parts are ordered properly, things are ordered correctly, they're on time uh, delivery. Technicians have plenty of work to do in that your hours per hour are as high as they possibly can be ethically. So your technicians never have that downtime and they're they're crushing it. An unorganized advisor is going to create technicians that show up late, that don't necessarily want to work, that take a lot of smoke breaks because the technicians are, feel like their time is being wasted and they're losing money. So it's tough. Yeah. So what uh, if a shop is looking to bring on a new advisor or a good advisor, what do they need to look for? I mean, you said you've been through several advisors. What are you looking for when you're trying to hire an advisor? Well, we, we do the mirror test first to make sure they're breathing, right? So, hey, that's okay. <laughs> you, you, you you're alive. Um, man, this is hard. And uh, I'll start this out by saying, understand this. Human behavior is the absolute hardest thing to change. So no matter what age the person is that you're hiring, whether it's somebody in their early 20s, mid-30s, 40s, 50s, the older we get, the harder our behaviors and habits are to change. But even somebody in their early 20s, They've built their personality around 23 years, 24 years of interacting with human beings. So the biggest challenge is, I think there's three phases to the game. You've got those tactical skills, okay, um, typing, all that stuff, you know, using a computer. The personal skills are probably the harder ones to um, identify the interpersonal skills, how they deal with, you know, other people. And then um, the organizational side on the back end. So I'm really good in the middle, right? Interpersonal skills, I'm great with people, but my organizational skills are, I pay somebody to come behind me and clean up after (laughs) me because at the end of the day, a tornado came through the office because my focus is on serving, not necessarily admin. So I think when you're looking for an advisor, 
moving forward, especially in today's day and age, they've got to be able to understand tech. They've got to be able to speak tech. They should definitely be able to type over 25 words a minute because typing is, you know, a critical skill today. Uh, I like a little bit of experience in the automotive repair world, but not necessarily. Uh, the industries that we look outside to are, you know, restaurant servers. Bartenders can come over and make great service advisors simply because they are used to handling a very fast-paced environment with a lot of people yelling at them. It's like an auto repair shop on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so, yeah, those are some of the areas. And then I think, Chris, what's going to happen, I, th- I think where this industry is going and what society's going to do for us with the technological advancements that we have is we're going to be able to automate probably half of what an advisor does now through the softwares that we're using as things continue to progress. So you may be right now where one advisor can handle maybe 80 to $100,000 a month in sales with two to three technicians where the advisors handling their own parts and all this. As technology begins to progress, that advisor may be able to handle double the amount of sales and volume, but now maybe you have a parts person that comes in or a parts person who's remote, right? That works three to four hours a day to help build the estimate. So there's different pieces to the puzzle starting to come together where shops can start to, you know, lower the expectation on the advisor, but get more out of each advisor through the automation process through software. So I I hope I answered your question as far as the skills that we look at, you know, number one, make sure they're breathing. <laughs> but I definitely, <laughs> I definitely think you need, you, you've got to have that servant's heart built in. And I was talking to uh, another shop owner this morning and it really centered around that servant's heart. Like you can have the best technical advisor on the planet and, you know, maybe the person was a technician and they're the best on cars, but if they don't understand how to make a customer feel welcome and, and get them to like them, that's hard to train. It's really hard to get people to understand the key to service advising is getting your customers to like and trust you. And if you don't have that likability factor, it's super hard to learn. It really is. Yeah. So let's get into your wheelhouse a little bit. You know, um, let's talk about training. How should service advisors or how, well, rather, how should shop owners approach training their service advisors? Well, I think from a shop owner's perspective, it's a lot like goal setting, right? The universe is going to give you everything you want if you're really clear on what you want. So I think that's the uh, biggest thing. Get clear about what you want. And I talked to another shop yesterday that they were inquiring about, you know, what we do and how we could help them. And they're currently being trained by another trainer in the industry. And there's a great program, great person. I know this trainer and I've talked to him at many conferences, but there's an incongruency in what the trainer wants to deliver in his training program and what the shop wants to deliver to their customers. So if you have somebody who's training your advisor that their philosophies are different than your core business philosophies, that's incongruency, man. That is not going to work. And then there's going to be friction. So number one, I think the shop owner, before you spend any money on training, get clear on what you want. Have your Pretend you hired the advisor on day one and do a 180-day training program for your advisor. What skills do you want them to accomplish after week one? And do a weekly goal on it. So, you know, week one, know how to use a shop management system. Be able to type 25 words per minute or better. Uh, here's our phone script. Here's how you answer the phone. Here's if you give pricing or the phone, here's how we do it or we don't. So I think the shop owners a lot of time look outside of their shop for help at training their advisors. But when you sit down and interview them, the shop owner really doesn't know what they want 
trained. They don't know what they want. So get clear on what you want first, build a blueprint of how you want it, and then turn your manual over to any training company that you're going to have and make sure they're in alignment with what you want. You know, for instance, DVIs. There are some trainers that train, there's green and there's red. There's no yellow. Okay, well, well, I don't really agree with that statement because what if my brakes are kind of in the middle? I don't need them today, so it's not a red thing, but they're not brand new, so they're not green. And I may need them in six months or a year, so I would want to mark that as a yellow so I can keep track of it. Well, if the trainer's training your advisors, don't mark anything in yellow, but the shop owner saying, yes, mark things in yellow, there's the friction right there. It happens all the time, man. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I hear stories from the field about this. So yeah, I get clear on what you want. And then I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, Tony Robbins philosophy of Kanai constant and never ending improvement. It's five minutes a day. It's 10 minutes a day. It's um, I've got a 15 year old, an 18 year old and a 13 year old, two boys and a girl. And my middle son is just like me. And we will discuss things at night. We just have these conversations about life and, you know, where he's going with his life and, it's interesting to be able to kind of coach him on the, the mistakes I made when I was his age and the things that are coming, but it's, it's not necessarily a formal training, right? It's, it's constant and never ending and everybody's got to be open to wanting to have the feedback. So if I hear my advisor take a phone call and I don't like something, I need to make sure I've got permission to discuss that with them in a non-threatening manner. It's not that you did something wrong, but here's how you did it. This is your default pattern Here's how we should have handled it. Now let's practice and reinforce it and get, step your game up one step. Let's take it from here and go to here next time. Can you do that? And then we're going to listen to it in real time. Watch how it happens and, and constantly train every single day. So it's little bits every single day. And over the course of a year, that's a milestone. And sometimes that's better than sitting into a two-day, three-day, or even a week-long class because it's going to get absorbed and it's going to be real. And it happens daily in their life, not just a one-time thing. All right, great. And you actually, you hit on something I was going to ask you next, which was frequency of training. How frequently should an advisor be trained? Oh, man, it's uh, as often as possible. Um, <laughs> you know, at, at the same time, I think it's an, it's really interesting. It's kind of like the tide of the ocean. I think there are moments where I don't listen to anything with success. Uh, I watch, you know, cr crazy channels on my streaming services. And there's times where we just want to take our mind out, just let it sit on the shelf and just kind of be, you know, but mm -hmm. then there's also times where, you know, Hey, I've got, it's game time. I've got to get back to work. There's an off season. There's an on season. I, I think you know, cyclically for auto repair shops, you, you've got two different seasons. You've got winter and summer. And then in between that, you've got spring and fall, right? Now, whether you're East Coast, West Coast, cold climate, hot climate, the cold and the heat are two differentiators that cause cars to break down. So most shops are crazy busy in the Southwest during the summer because temperatures exceed over 100 degrees. So if I'm West Coast and I'm in Southern California, before June 1st, my advisors have gone through training. They're at the top of their game. They're primed. They're rested. They're ready to go. Because I know for the next 90 days, I'm going to beat the hell out of them. My customers are going to beat them up. And they've got a grinding 90-day task ahead of them to get through summer. And that's the that's the bulk of our sales. Those are our best months coming in. And maybe somebody in Minneapolis, though, those months are December, January, and February because batteries explode and cars freeze, right? <laughs> you know, they have snow mm -hmm. that falls out of the ground in those climates. So 
in between those times are the great greatest times to get training done. I mean, when you're busy, it's super hard to get get training in. And that's where you do those micro trainings, you know, five minute conversations that help. But I would say, you know, spring and fall are the two best times to make sure your your A players are primed and ready to go, you know. And you see it in the NFL, you know, the NFL is bye weeks now and you see players rest up for the playoffs. You know, they're they're getting ready for that run. So I guess we're no different than guys making hundreds of million dollars in their contract. <laughs> Quite true. <laughs> so tell me, how does a well-trained advisor, well, how does a well-trained advisor become an asset to their technician? Like, Why are they such a great partner for their technician? Oh, just because of the work that they're able to produce. Uh, they're the rainmaker, you know, and it's when I watch really good advisors, they're, they're able to adapt to any situation that's thrown their way. Um, and they identify which cars are good cars and the pitfalls in this industry that are, you need to stay away from that. An inexperienced advisor may take in and waste a technician's time. So for example, when I worked at the dealership, I worked at a Volkswagen dealership. We had four master trained Volkswagen technicians with over 20 years experience, each one of them. Those four guys were amazing. But then we had 20 other newer technicians that didn't have the experience as our master techs. To get the technicians to want to work with me took about six months. But after they started to see the results of the tickets I was able to produce and the customers coming back and asking for me, that's really when they got on board and said, okay, this is a person I can make money with and who's going to help make my career. Look, with technicians, we've got to understand this. Good technicians today should be making $150,000 to $200,000 a year. That's a statement I'm going to make, and I'm going to take that to the bank every single day. My pay plan at my shop will produce that for my technicians if they hit their hour numbers. Now, as an advisor, I've got to be able to sell that every day and produce that for them. So your technicians are hanging their paycheck and their career on the advisor's ability to produce that work and get it done and bring in the money. And at the same time, on the back end, I need good technicians because I can be the best salesperson in the world. But if we don't have a tech to fix it and the car doesn't get fixed, we don't get paid. So it's a it's a win-win situation. But I think that's really what technicians are looking for is a shop that has a reputation and an advisor staff that can produce the income that they need to produce. I think that's yeah. key. And you touched on something that I think is really important was that that uh, confidence trust curve. Mm-hmm. That that the, the the advisor and the technician have to have like when you bring on an advisor like that that curve you said took you six months mm-hmm. you know is that is that kind of the standard you think for most does it does it take you know anywhere from three to six months for the technician to really have full confidence in the advisor I I think so you know and it's it's interesting when you look at you know going through the and many people have has that I've gone through as a shop owner. The hard part for me in interviewing people is you don't know how people are going to work until you actually work with them. So you might be the best interviewer. You're great at dinner. You answer all the right things. But in reality, you're just a jerk. Like, and there's certain situations that set you off. And, you know, I'm not saying you're a jerk. I'm just saying the technician. (laughs) Understood. (laughs) Um, But that may not come out for three or four weeks, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. the honeymoon period is awesome. Like, first two weeks, I go home. I'm like, hey, honey, we got a winner. It's great. I'm going to be able to take some time off. And then four weeks later, she's like, why are you mad? I'm like, oh, well, so-and-so quit today. And it's like, well, I thought it was great two weeks ago. Well, it was. But then this happened. So, yeah, I think it's three months to four months, you know, the honeymoon's period over is over. We're really getting to see consistency weekly as far as what's being produced, how they work. Uh, Also, after six months, you're going to see 
comebacks on two fronts. If the technician is not good at what he does, then the amount of comebacks that come back from a not properly repairing the car happen. But at the same time, advisors have comebacks because a lot of advisors don't understand how to leave the door open when they sell stuff. So a technician may say, hey, I've got this AC line that's wide open. We need to sell this. But at the same time, leave the door open because I, I can't put any refrigerant in this and see if the compressor is good or if there's anything else wrong with the system. Well, inexperienced advisors will tell the customer, you need this AC line. It's going to be $1,200 to fix your car. AC be working great. And the customer says, go ahead and fix it. So they fix it. They put the hose on it, charge it up. The compressor won't come on. The compressor's locked up. You know, maybe there's another issue. So now it needs more work. Well, the advisor didn't explain that properly up front. So now you've got a situation with the customer that's a negative and those things happen. So I think three to six months gets to shake all that out. And then realistically for the long term, I mean, right now I am trying to get this 10 to 15 year plan with all my employees. You know, let's give it a hard push for 15 years and commit to each other for 15 years. I'd love to have a team that stays with me for 15 years because I can retire on that. They can retire on that. Our customers can get through retirement or get through college. And the sad part about this industry, Chris, is when we don't have it together as an industry in our in the back of the house, the customers suffer. And when we don't have five-star shops, customers then choose to go to different shops for different repairs. And that's the worst thing that a customer can do. You know, pick one shop and stay with them over 20 years. You're going to save a ton of money because that the shop knows your car. The repairs are going to be less because you're going to have duplicate repairs and all that. And it's a better experience. So I think that's really one of the things that I know shop owners all across the country are trying to do is just build a team that sticks together. And it's hard because you have people that are eating everybody's young because if there's a good tech across town and I know he's, he could be a fit, I'll go offer him $10 more an hour to come over to me. Well, so he comes over here and I've had a technician. This guy worked for Ducati motors, USA. He was a Mercedes Benz deck. He said the only time he got a pay raise was when he moved his toolbox. Meaning when another dealer would poach him, he'd get a pay raise for moving his toolbox. And so he was always looking out for the next opportunity to get a pay raise. Right. So in three years, he said his pay went from $25 an hour to $47.50 an hour by moving to four different dealerships. And who's creating that? We are. The shop owners and the service manager of this world are creating that culture. So, yeah, we definitely need to change that. But I, I think, you know, going back to it, it is definitely uh, something that takes time to shake out in the building the team properly. Okay. And let's look at it from the other side. You know, how does a well-trained advisor become an asset to customer retention and acquisition? Well, so what kind of car do you drive? I drive a 2010 Honda Accord. Awesome. And let me, I don't know anything about you personally as far as outside of work. <laughs> um, did you buy the car brand new or did you buy it used? I bought it used. Okay. How long have you had it? I've had it since 2015. Okay. So you've had it about eight years now. Mm -hmm. And how many different repair shops have you taken it to for repairs? Two. Two. Okay. So tell me about your favorite shop. My favorite shop is the independent shop I have to take it to currently. Uh, okay, I, took it to the I, I took it to the dealership for a long time. I was a dealership for a very long time. Then I moved to an independent shop once I started understanding the difference. <laughs> okay, now, see, you're rare because you have chosen that one shop and typically have stayed with them. So what is it about the shop that you choose that you, as a consumer you like? Communication. What do they do so well? The they communicate very well. 
Okay, communication. Yeah, they communicate so, very well. So whenever there's an issue with the car, like whenever I take the car in, you know, they go, you know, they do the DVI, the courtesy inspection, and they walk me through the inspection and they give me the, you know, the green, the yellow, the red breakdown and kind of give me the repair plan. If, you know, if I tell them I've got financial constraints or obligations that I've got to take care of, they'll tell me, well, here, do, I, I'd recommend you do this first, do this second, do this third. Awesome. So you've been able to build a relationship with one shop that shows you transparently the overall health and safety of your car, the status of your vehicle. And then at the same time, they're willing to work within your budget and what you need to take care of at the time. Do you ever feel like they're trying to oversell you? No. Do you ever feel like they're trying to sell you something you don't necessarily need? No. And if you had to get in your car right now and drive to Las Vegas, do you feel that your car would make it? Right now? Uh, yeah, right, right now I need some repair. <laughs> right now I do need I do need some things for <laughs> some work done. <laughs> but in a, in a perfect situation, if if they were to repair everything that needs to be done, I could drive to Las Vegas with no problems. Yeah, and see that's awesome because you know this, you've got peace of mind with your car, right? So my my point in asking you these questions, and you can do this a hundred times, you know, a hundred different people on the street, you're going to get very similar answers. Customers that don't have a trusted repair shop, it's a very fearful place that they come from because they're chasing the lower end of the market. They're always calling around for price and trying to get the lowest price. And they're trying to diagnose their cars themselves. And it's just not a good place to be from an auto repair, from a consumer period. And that's the challenge is when you don't have that and, and how can advisors build this relationship with their customer? Um, it, it's not that hard to do. When you can deliver what you've been able to get from your shop, then the word of mouth will spread. Customers will send their friends and family over to you because they know they can trust you and they have that peace of mind. Customers want that peace of mind. And right now, man, the market is absolutely scary. New car sales are at an all expensive. Mm -hmm. Used cars that are junk are selling for eight to ten thousand dollars. And to invest, you know, four to ten thousand dollars in a car is not that hard today. So I think. The, the, the message for advisors would be this. You have your own business within the business that you work in. So how do you want to build your brand moving forward? What would your brand say? What would your customers say about you and the services that you provide? Would they, you know, are you the type of advisor that, um, you know, you do oversell some fluid exchanges and some fluff services and stuff like that because you get a spiff on it? And maybe that customer likes you, but they're not going to, you know, go out and sing your song to the world or share everything because, you know, there's just, it's just not at that level. So I think it's about building your family in your customer base. And realistically, these customers are what's going to give you everything you want in life, whether it's college for your kids, a new house, a new car, retirement, everything we do comes out of our customers and it, it's reciprocal. You know, what you give is what you're going to get back. Right. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of situations here, two hypotheticals. So one, Let's say there's a shop and they've got an underperforming advisor. How does a shop owner handle an underperforming advisor? And then what do they do? You know, what, I mean, if the, let's say the advisor just does not, you know, get it done over a certain amount of time. Like, what does a shop owner need to do? Um, there's a lot of different factors there. And I, I, this can also apply for technicians. I, the answer comes down to weekly accountability and then daily accountability. And if you look at most 20 groups or most owner groups out there, they're all looking at numbers that are 30 to 60 days old. 
But if I'm an owner and I'm in a meeting and we're looking at my February financials or my quarter one financials and we're $50,000 short, and I go, man, that is not good. I need to make an extra 50 grand. So I'm going to go back to my shop and I'm going to have my staff call every customer that came in from January to March and ask them for $50 because we undercharged you. I need your credit card now. I'll process that payment now. Every customer is going to hang up on us and laugh at us because we can't change the past. But what I can do is change the future. So I can change my results for May and June. And I think this is the problem with a lot of uh, businesses is we're too focused on the past and we get hung up in the emotional baggage that is negative with that. And we can't change the future. So this underperforming advisor, there's a couple key things I would do. Number one, figure out their monthly goals. You got to break it down to car count goals, average repair order, and then your profit target is going to be set up on the back end through your matrix, right? Two things an advisor can do every single day. They can bring cars in. So if I work for you and you said, hey, Jeremy, we have a goal of $100,000 in sales this month. Your advisor, number two, you need to bring in 100 cars at $500 a car. Those are your metrics. Okay, 100 cars over 20 days, that means I need five cars a day. Cool. I'm going to bring in five cars a day. So if it's two o'clock and I've only brought in four cars, what am I on the hunt for? Car number five. So mm -hmm. the phone rings, it's a broken car. Hey, guess what? I can get that car in today. We can actually take a look at it, get you some sort of an answer, but plan on leaving it for tomorrow. And now I've captured car five, whereas before I wasn't focused on that. I might not have answered that phone. So an underperforming advisor is just focused on the wrong thing. It's always about filling that pipeline with the cars that you need. Once you attain your car count goal, then you go into sales mode, get the sales made, and then production mode. But it all starts with capturing those cars. That's the one thing I've done ever since I was 19 years old is where are my cars? Where are my cars? And as soon as I get the cars and the parking lot's full, I know the numbers are going to take care of themselves. The back end of that is how far into the personal life do you get with your employees and your advisor? If you have an advisor who shows up right at the nick of time, they woke up 15 minutes before they have a 10 minute commute. There's no way they're in the right frame of mind to serve a customer at that point. So are you exercising? Are you eating right? You know, what are your habits outside of work? But that's the six to 12 month conversation, you know, that a shop owner can build with their employee to help them live a better life. And it's hard to break through that. A lot of times it just doesn't happen. Um, so I guess the answer to that is, is it a personal issue that's, that's hindering their performance at work? But you set the blueprint up for, you know, just like a sports team. Here's our goals. You know, it's, you know, we're week one. You know, we get into week two. We were $10,000 short last week. We're going to ratchet it up in the next three weeks. We're going to recast our goals and we keep pushing for that month end number. So in April, if we're short, I've got two more months to catch up for quarter two. So then we add what we're short on in May and June. And then I coach my team into what we have to do forward. And the past is the past. I can't change that. We're going to stay forward, looking forward to make sure we make this happen. All right. And then the other side of that is, you know, how does a shop attract like high performing techs? You know, you've got, a, you've got a shop who's got a rising profile. You think you, you know, you, you're just one tech away from like next level. How does a shop attract, you know, a really high performer? Man, I, I hate to give you this answer, but a, a lot of it is money. Um, so for instance, I thought I was paying at the top of my pay scale for my area until I added $15 an hour to the guarantee, which freaked me out. Like I'm like, I would take the job for this. Well, guess what happened once I started advertising that way? I got really good applicants that were now willing to leave my competition and come work for me. 
So whatever you think the top of the pay scale is, you've got to go above that. And like I said, I believe good technicians today should be able to earn $150,000 to $200,000 a year. And if you're not in a major metro area, there's not a lot of pay plans that actually pay that. You know, most technicians, and I don't want to, you know, um, specific numbers, but for years, uh, technicians was making 20 to 30 bucks an hour. Uh, that was great. It's no longer that way. I think the bottom has moved to 40 and the top is somewhere between 70 to $80 an hour. And that's the reality of where we live today. And I think number one, pay has got to be there. Number two, benefits. Uh, we lose so much talent in this industry because we are independent. We don't have a good benefit package for our employees. Uh, my wife worked for a hospital. She had great benefits. It probably worth thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. She worked there for a lot less than she can make somewhere else, but the benefits are what made her stay there. So, you pay benefits, and then your shop, the facilities, and the type of work that you're attracting. Are you getting the bottom of the market or the top of the market? If you're a shop today and you're working on mostly early two thousands and you know. 2005 to 2012 cars, that market's getting old. A lot of technicians don't want to deal with that. You know, they want to stay on the newer stuff and, and really get into the profitable repairs. So I think that's the other side of it. You have to build a business that is getting the right cars for your technician. All right, Jeremy. Hey, well, thanks for joining me today, Jeremy. Awesome, Chris. Man, I appreciate that. that was fun. I, I talked a lot. Yeah. I'm tired now. So <laughs> that was a great conversation. And lastly, just how can people reach you if they're interested in talking to you or learning more from you? How can they reach you? Oh, nice. Just go to the website. It's advisorfix.com, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-F-I-X.com. You got my cell phone, every information you need right there on the website. Awesome. Well, appreciate your time today, Jeremy. Thank you. All right, Chris. High five, man. Thank you, man. And that's going to do it for us here today at Ratchet & Wrench Radio. Uh, I'd like to invite you to follow us on our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as subscribe to our email newsletter, which goes out daily. Uh, and you can find that at ratchetandwrench.com. And that's R-A-T-C-H-E-T-A-N-D-W-R-E-N-C-H.com. And may the rest of your day be the best of your day. And we'll see you next week.